MLB isn't just another hard-to-remember acronym. It stands for Minimum Lovable Brand, the 11FS approach to creating modern, iterative brands to help cut through the noise and create a genuine connection with customers and their culture. Brand is everything in this digital-first world, and we want to help you get it right. To learn more about Minimum Lovable Brand and to download our free handbook, head to bit.ly forward slash 11FSMLB. We're launching a brand new newsletter. 11FS Unfiltered is a fortnightly installment of hard-hitting opinions on all things financial services. Every fortnight, a brutally honest, no-holds-barred take on a hand-picked topic from one of our experts will make its way to your inbox. To hear from some of the brightest minds at 11FS and join the conversation, head to bit.ly forward slash unfiltered newsletter now. Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Simon Taylor and in today's episode we're going to be talking about credit. Credit can be a lifeline in times of crisis, but the credit risk models banks rely on are simply no longer fit for purpose for the realities of today. The pandemic has wreaked havoc on everyone's finances, apart from a lucky few, and post-pandemic the need for credit has never been greater. To help dive into this topic and find out what the solutions are to our credit problems, uh, I'm joined by some phenomenal guests. Returning to the show, we have the one and only Freddie Kelly, who is the CEO of Credit Kudos. Thanks for joining us. Can you remind everybody who you are and what Credit Kudos does? Absolutely. So Credit Kudos is a challenger credit reference agency and open banking provider. Uh, In a nutshell, that means we're looking at new ways to measure credit worthiness to help people get access to financial services uh, using new data. Fantastic. And uh, you are being joined by a Fintech Insider debutante. Uh, We have Francesca Carlisi, who is co-founder and CEO of Molo Finance. Uh, Francesca, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about you and Molo, please? Yes, of course. So, well, Molo is a digital mortgage lender and it does, you know, something like this does exist today. We like to be uh, thinking they were the first one that attempted to digitize mortgages in the UK. And so our goal is eventually to be able to give people a mortgage decision in a matter of minutes rather than lengthy weeks or sometimes months. Absolutely. Uh, As somebody in the house buying process at the moment, I would greatly appreciate that. Um, And last but not least, we have Paul Harold, who's head of Curve Credit. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Um, Can you remind us uh, who Curve are and what you do there? Of course. Uh, Nice to see you again. Uh, Curve is an over-the-top banking app, rather a well-known fintech these days. And for the last 10 or 11 months, I've been creating a credit, a consumer lending business within Curve, which will look and feel a bit like point of sale, buy now, pay later, but will all be controlled within the Curve app. Fantastic. Let's give consumers some control. I like the sound of that. Um, Let's start with some of the basic questions. Freddie, um, people throw out this word credit score. There's all of these apps um, that allow you, whether in the US with Credit Karma or in Europe with um, ClearScore, there are all these apps that show you what your credit score is. Uh, People want to improve their credit score. How did this come about? What what even is this number? Yeah, it's it's a really... uh quite a big one to unpack because there's there's so much misinformation and there's there's so much history there um credit obviously originates from the the word meaning trust so the idea of a credit score is just like a a trust score um and credit bureaus are the companies that that kind of provide that trust score to businesses like uh, francesca and, and paul that, that want to lend money at least traditionally um the the way that, that these kind of businesses came around uh, was really from uh, you know need and necessity so people buying stuff in their local shops uh would would say you know i need this loaf of bread or whatever and i'll pay you back next week when my as i my crop comes back or whatever my my history is not very good but but whatever it was and uh and and so you know the shop owner would say okay i I know your face i'll remember you you paid back last time Uh, and obviously as people became uh more dependent and traveled more and and you know the, the economy grow and, and all these good things, people would come into shops and they wouldn't recognize them. They'd say, well, how do I know if I can trust you or not? And so the, these things called credit bureaus came to exist in, in, in the US in about um, the, the 60s, 70s. They, they kind of passed a bill that sort of formalized this and made it more centralized. And, and so uh, a kind of load, of load of different companies sort of consolidated and gave us like these three or four big credit reference agencies that we know of today that exist in the US. And uh, in fact, are the same three companies in the UK 
uh, as well. Um, credit scores fundamentally work on your past borrowing performance. There, there are a few other things that kind of go into a credit model, a traditional credit model I'm talking about here. Um, but generally, it's it's looking at your past performance, so how much you've borrowed, whether you've paid it back, how much you utilize that credit if you if you kind of have revolving credit things like uh, credit cards, um, and also your sort of appetite, so the amount that you apply and and uh, or attempt to apply for for credit is also a factor. And then there are a few other little bits and pieces around where you live, your uh, electoral roll status, things like that. And and those are the kind of what we think of as being traditional credit scores. Um, so I'll stop there. But that, that's Chris, kind of the, that, that all gives a lender some confidence that you are who you say you are. You've been able to borrow successfully in the past from somebody that's not me, uh, from someone else, which which is which is kind of helpful, I suppose, if if you're going to lend somebody that's just walked through the door for the first time. Um, but Francesca, I guess that's not all there is to a lender. Like they're they're not just looking at a score and going, oh, it's above seven hundred tick. Like there's um, there, there may be other bits and pieces that they're on the hook to do and. Um, how how much are we reliant on those scores and, and how central have they become? Yeah, so yeah, there are a lot of other bits and pieces, to be honest. So it's just not really a tick the box type of exercise at all. However, I must say credit scores are important and I think they're a sign of evolution of financial systems. So I think they are today the backbone of many financial systems as we know them, right? So, um, however, yes, there are many more things. Uh, with, so I, I would say that credit scores are the minimum infrastructure you need and is a very if you don't have a credit score it becomes very difficult and a lot of countries actually still don't however there are a lot of other things so i think lending at the end is more more an art than a science right because you need to consider things like affordability so can somebody afford a mortgage for example or a loan which is nothing to do necessarily with the credit history or many payments he missed in the past right you need to consider symptoms of what you call let's say, propensity to pay or willingness to pay, because at the end, you could be a great borrower. Always, You might have always repaid your loan and you might have a lot of income, so effectively you can afford a loan. But for various reasons, you might can detect the fact that that customer in the future for the loan you're giving him might not have a high willingness to pay, right? So I think that's why I think it's really an exercise and where I think data, though, play a vital role. And I think that's where data can really change um, the world going forward, because you, the more you triangulate, the better the lending decision at the end. Interesting. So um, I, I think, um, Paul, it's worth possibly unpacking that and, and contextualizing it against the pandemic, right? We've seen lending models evolve over the over the decades. Um, and Francesca mentioned the D word there, data. H- how do you think about that in the context of the pandemic? Because have we ever, I don't know if we've ever seen a market like the one we're in at the moment. We've not seen a market like the one we're in at the moment. We've seen recessions before, but nothing of the nature of the current pandemic. My thoughts on the pandemic and credit scoring are, uh, there's a very clear distinction, I think, between creditworthiness and affordability. I really enjoy the distinction that's made between creditworthiness and affordability. It's been a great contribution by our regulators, actually, to make the distinction. I maintain the following, that if somebody defaults on a credit obligation because of the consequences of the pandemic, then... In any meaningful sense, their creditworthiness has not changed. Nothing has changed intrinsically about the person. Nothing's changed about their conscientiousness. Nothing's changed about the seriousness with which they take their obligations on contracts. They simply didn't have any money, and it wasn't their fault. And I think that draws this very beautiful distinction, I think, between affordability and creditworthiness. I see creditworthiness as a property of an individual, the makeup of their character, whereas affordability is a fickle it's associated with employment and expenses and the kinds of things that Freddie and his company have become expert in. Um, and uh, just to uh, just to make a final observation on this, it's 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 my it, Freddie pointed out that one of the reasons that we that most lenders use credit reference agencies is in fact because of this repository of previous behaviour. I happen to think that's the problem with credit scoring is that the credit scores become dominated by those pieces of information. Uh, It it seems to me that we need to look at previous defaults and truly understand, were these these evidence of a lack of creditworthiness or were they evidence of temporary, unavoidable, irreducible risk that no longer 
should be part of the estimation of somebody's creditworthiness. And I think the pandemic is a good example because if you look at the demand for forbearance and the fact that it shouldn't affect credit scores, what we're saying is this is beyond your control. It has not affected you as a person, therefore it should not affect your credit score. I think that's true idiosyncratically as well. Freddie, are most lenders set up to be able to think that way, though? I mean, I'm I'm sure um, there will be listeners who work in banks violently agreeing with the assessment that that Paul's given there in terms of the difference between them. But how do they actually do that? How do you achieve that? I mean, again, Francesca mentioned the data word. Can you do that with with what you had historically? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, there's no kind of blanket answer, as as Francesca alluded to, you know, that different uh, businesses use different combinations of data sources and indeed different credit bureau, you know, that it's unlikely that especially for the high street lenders that they're using just a single data source. And there's a a few reasons why they'd be doing that. Um, The the problem, one of the problems is when we talk about affordability and creditworthiness in this kind of view from the FCA that that Paul mentioned is that, um, you know, it, it is, it's, we're talking about health, not wealth. And so um, we, we, we want to separate those two concepts and, and credit worthiness is kind of this propensity thing and affordability is the, the ability thing and, and ability can change over time, as we've heard. Um, and traditional credit data doesn't have a lot of granularity when it comes to things like your day-to-day finances. You know, there, there is existing data sets that, that bureaus use to look at sort of account turnover, so the, the closing balances of current accounts and things like that. Um, but as as for, you know, whether you were paid on time this month, wh- whether you had an unexpected bill or, you know, wh- whether you've been furloughed or all those sorts of things that, that have come into light this year, um, that information hasn't st- tr- traditionally been in a credit score. And, it, and it's, it's a weird one because a lot of people kind of just assume that that's the way things work, you know, especially with the, the kind of... Um, traditional sort of banking model where, you know, I get my credit card from the, the company that I get my current account from. I, I sort of assume that there's some data exchange between the two points, but there, there really isn't. Yeah, surely, Freddie. Like if if I'm going to big bank ABC, um, they've seen me come through the branch. They, I've got my current account with them. If I've used it from somewhere else, they must know me, right? In most cases, it, it, it's not uh, it's not happening. That connection isn't being made. It's it, it sort of best. It's it's kind of a you know you only have to answer six questions instead of ten kind of thing because we already knew your name and address. But but it, it's not you know we're we're cleverly using all this data to kind of infer your creditworthiness. Yeah, and there's no automatic system thing there. You might as well have walked through the front door in many cases. Um, albeit there is an, an an element of confidence because the the I wonder how much of that cross sell inside of a bank is I'm able to market. To to you because you're already a customer of this other product versus um, I've actually wrapped myself and understood this customer in depth. I mean, um, there's there's definitely a lot of work inside of the big banks that I've seen where they're putting in deep CRMs. They're really trying to understand their customers better. I, I do think there's, there's pieces of it, but I guess the fundamental design point was they weren't designed to work that way. They were designed almost in silos historically, and now you're sort of chipping away at that from the outside in. The, the other thing to, to mention on that is is we kind of think about creditworthiness assessment as being sort of like a snapshot uh, uh, that, that happens when you apply. And, and obviously, as we've just heard, affordability, you know, is only as good as the last time you, you did the ana- analysis. And, and, you know, one lender's affordability, if they get it wrong, it affects all the other subsequent affordability assessments that a person has done. And so one of the great things about, you know, some of the open data sources that we're going to go on to talk about is that you can continually look at these things and, and have a bit more granularity. And, and in, indeed, you know, I'm sure Paul will allude to this, but things like revolving credit, especially, you know, if, if someone, uh, you know, their, their income circumstances change month to month, then being able to shape their repayments and their, the way they spend around that rather than just sort of setting it at one point in time is, is hugely valuable and something that we haven't seen from traditional credit checking. So if I was to try and restate the problem I heard so far, it's kind of um, we, we kind of this, this stuff evolved over time. And therefore, it was built for something that worked at the time. It had a limited data set, and it, and it had its limitations. The regulator appears to be pushing uh, different terminology between affordability and creditworthiness. Um, there's a lot of people investing now to, to try and change that. The pandemic has possibly really highlighted some of the gaps in, in the, the ways that were, that were already there. Um, but, I, but I really want to um, flip this to the lenders, uh, Francesca. How do you think they're impacted? Like, if, if they maybe... Can, can they see the customers? Can they deploy uh, lending? We've seen a lot of the big banks put aside um, potential um, impairment uh, losses and, and kind of really put sensible provisions aside. But 
Is that because they, they need to be able to make changes or is that because um, the suitability of those models or the, the operational issues? Where do you think the, the, the problem is internally for, for some of these folks? Yeah, well, um, well, there are many types of problems, but effectively, I think what you're saying is that your summary is perfect, I think, but effectively what you're saying that whilst uh, this model was were built uh, are a little bit backward looking and also very narrow in terms of the type of data they look at, right? Whereas in reality, today's we 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 have multi- multiple sources of data which we, we should be using, which could allow us to also have a much more dynamic assessment of real credit, you know, real ability to lend in a way. So the problems um, are the banks face, I think, is twofold. And I spent part of my life in banking, unfortunately, still a majority of my life. So, um, so one is the, the basic infrastructure of data sets. So in spite of any desire to do cross-selling, to look at the customer and have this single view of customers, in reality, the databases were built in such a layered way that they don't talk to each other. And the reality is it takes time and actually it's often impossible to connect the dots. And the second thing I think is a risk um, appetite. And we've seen it in the pandemic, right? So effectively, um, banks tend to be very cautious, right? So even if in theory, you know that it's, you should look at multiple sources of data and then, you know, you should look forward looking and for example, banks know today there's some customer that missed that they had to elect a mortgage holidays. They know that they are good borrowers. And that, so in reality, they should be, uh, you know, able to get a loan without any problem in the future. In reality, they need to tick a lot of boxes when they need to give them the next loan. And so uh, they will be very cautious because any potential mistake, it's, it's into regulatory capital. Regulatory capital today is a very scarce source. And so I think at the end, if you're a large bank, what's your incentive? Minimizing risk is probably the number one uh, objective, right? Now, this doesn't help though, because it doesn't help good borrowers, good customers, as Paul was saying that, you know, doesn't, there's no reason that still deserves credit and and can support economy to grow right so these are operational issues and then there are some risk appetite and i think mentality issues that are very difficult to to change if you are in a highly regulated large incumbent bank I think the cost of capital thing is a really important one, especially with with um, you know uh, the the kind of recent moves with low interest rate environment and a high cost of capital. Being a lender is a hard place to be at the moment. Um, so. It, cost of capital being how much does it cost me to lend to this customer for, if I fund it from the market or from my own balance sheet. And and the the operational side, like there's no amount of CRM that fixes having a really shitty core banking system like that's that's 40 years old. And the there's been some good sort of um, improvements made year on year and year and year and year and year. Um, and we shouldn't underestimate, I think, the work of the big lenders to really do a lot for customers in the past six months that have been, you know, would have been far in a far worse position. So what they've achieved is phenomenal. But actually, the headwinds are still really, really strong. And credit is, is more important than ever. Um, Paul, can you talk about like how reliant the economy is on credit and, and the consequences of, of not having access to it? Yeah, so um, my first observation is that let's take the example of banks and their balance sheets, that uh, if banks had to match the maturity of their assets with the maturity of their liabilities, there'd be no economic growth at all. You'd be relying entirely on equity funding. Um, banks, let's, uh, can you unpack that briefly? Because it was, it was quite jargon-laden, but it's a really important oh, I beg your point. Yeah. So when I think about credit, I, I look at maturity. I mean, the, the very beautiful thing about banks' balance sheets, of course, is maturity transformation. And, um, and we have a mortgage lender uh, on the call who will know all about um, uh, maturity transformation. So what I mean is a great deal of bank funding is very short term. The obvious example being deposit accounts and, and site accounts. But a great deal of bank funding is very short term. A great deal of bank lending is, is much longer term. For example, if you want to build a pipeline across Siberia or if you want to make a mortgage, asking for the money back the next day or the day after is not going to work. So the primary function of banks when I look at bank balance sheets is what I call maturity transformation. In other words, short term on the liability side, long term on the asset side. It's my observation that if banks were unable to have that maturity mismatch, in other words, unable to lend out the deposits and the other sources of funding, economic growth would dry up. It would become zero. And even with banking crises, like the one we saw in 2008, 
if you look at the the overall global pattern of economic growth, even the large banking crises are a small blip, um, and all, and almost therefore immaterial in the long run at net present value and that kind of thing. So credit is absolutely invaluable from an economic growth point of view. But there's a much more personal way uh, credit is important. Take the benefit to a curved credit customer, um, for example. What is, why do people borrow? They, they borrow for two reasons, intrinsic reasons, it seems to me, and they're both equally important and both highly beneficial. The first is, of course, to consume things now that they would otherwise have to save for or wait for or never have at all. If it were not for mortgage lending, society would be divided into people who own property and people who did not forever. If it were not for mortgage lending, you would not be able, the vast majority of people would not be able to afford their own home. It would never happen. And you'd have an incredible divide in the distribution of wealth. The same thing applies to um, repairing your car, buying a washing machine, going on holiday, buying some new clothing. So credit allows you to consume things now that you would otherwise not be able to do. There's a second reason people borrow, particularly buy now, pay later style products. And that is what, what, what somebody from a sophisticated financial background might call liquidity. But what does it mean in practice? It means if I want to buy a new phone handset or a Peloton bike, they're expensive items. I'd, I'd be willing to pay for the fact that I can keep liquidity cash around to meet unexpected needs or opportunities during the course of my loan. They're both incredibly valuable things. It's a strangely controversial topic these days about the value that borrowers derive from lending, but it's very real. It's very real. And I think that's a really good point that I want to kind of hammer home. And Freddie, you've done a report recently on the value of lending to people. For some people, credit is a dirty word. Lending is a bad thing. Any form of credit must be must be sort of um, cigarettes and you know, bad for your health, and you should just stay away from it. Is that the case? Do, con- do consumers think that way, Freddie? And, and what did you find in your report from uh, the, the difference it makes to people's lives? Yeah, I, I mean, I echo everything that, that Paul's just said. It, it's a fundamental tool, and it's not a, uh, it's, you know, some people, as you say, sort of, look at credit as a kind of failing or something that people have fallen back on if if they weren't able to afford something another way but you know it's really a tool to to get to uh you know a a better outcome and and it's not just you know stretching beyond your means as as some people think um we we did a as you say a survey and and, uh, particularly in light of of the pandemic we were looking at how how people were using credit and and the sort of reliance on it and, and what they were spending on and i think there's some interesting um, takeaways on, on terms of what people actually spend on it as to how it affects risk, um, which may be something we go on to. But um, uh, the, the thing you've got to remember is, you know, the, 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 the lenders that, that service the market are kind of servicing different pockets of the market. So there's just different risk thresholds and different consumers fit into each of those. Um, and, and very often what happens, and certainly one of the reasons that we built our business is that, that the people that are kind of most overlooked or, or find it hardest to get access to credit for a variety of reasons, many of which are generally not their fault, are the ones that, that need it the most. And, and it can be for something as simple as, yeah, you know, a new washing machine or, um, you know, mobility, getting a car to be able to, to perform your job or, you know, a van or a piece of equipment or whatever. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, we, we, we kind of seen that, that if anything, uh, that this, this year has accelerated the need for, uh, for borrowing and, and and indeed also we've seen that people are paying off more and more so you know it just goes to show that it is a fundamental tool rather than um, a dirty word as you put it the the stories the story is different for everybody isn't it yeah i guess um some people use it for different purposes and not all of it is negative um, i love this stat that said um uh one in five respondents said they'd uh, need to borrow now uh, more than ever and 33 percent uh worry that credit has become less available since the pandemic hit. So that for some people, it's a lifeline. For some people, it's a bridge to opportunity. Positioned in the right way, it can be. Um, and, it, and it doesn't have to be a last resort thing. It can actually be uh, something that creates opportunity. And I think that's a, a really important um, point. But you know, if, if we stay in this position, Francesca, what's going to be the impact on individuals, on a generation of people? Are we losing a generation of house buyers? Are we losing people from saving? Like, uh, do, is there real risks that we um, we fundamentally uh, are facing as, as as a set of economies around the world from from how we think about credit? Well, um, I think let me maybe 
uh, challenge a bit that position. So I think um, the I don't think everybody thinks negatively about credit, right? So I actually think all the benefits that uh, Freddie and Paul highlighted are, are, are clear. I think without credit, yes, you know, it is partially the fool of economic growth, but is it partially what allows people to get to the to, to, to the next level? So I think there is a general. Not everybody thinks negatively. I think the excess of credit is what has created this this sense and this sentiment. Oh my gosh, right? I need to be careful. But we all know the excess of everything is is bad, <laughs> right? So uh, I think that's where we need to draw a little bit of a line. So I, I think so. If anyone I'm saying is not necessarily always perceived as bad, however, and I think even more so that in a situation like we are today, following a crisis and so on, credit is vital to get out of it, right? So we are seeing what happens with what happened with mortgage holidays, what's happened in the housing market, but even on consumer lending, I'm sure, you know, that's a situation. In a situation where the overall affordable income level has drained for temporary reasons, not all of them fundamentally has to stay, then only the ability to bridge to to, for a certain period, true credit can give you the ability to step back again, right? So now, is there a danger in that? Yes, there is, because what the stats you mentioned before are true. So more people need credit today, and there is less credit around availability. So because of what I mentioned before, lenders have a lot of obligations. Unfortunately, we do, right? And there is this dilemma in a situation like this. What's, what's the fine balance between lending to support growth and, and give people the ability to bridge to another stable situation and responsible lending, which is something you probably hear a lot in the industry, which is giving lending to somebody that can repay because then otherwise you're putting them in a, in a difficult position. And I think that that is what's bringing, keeping a lot of lenders back. Um, is there a risk right now? I have to say that the measures that were taken you know, during the last few months by the government regulators to make sure, you know, there is not a full kind of pulling out of lenders from the market has been quite effective. Even mortgage holidays and things like that will they will mitigate the impact. There will be some impact in terms of anyway, because there will be a cliff edge at a moment where this measure come are coming to an end and, and people are not yet back on their foot in terms of you know, uh, income generation. So what we mentioned before about affordability. So I think there is there are some risks there, um, but not as bad as it could have been if there weren't any mitigants in place, in my view. So, uh, and there are a lot of other players, um, a little bit like us, and more, more and more also in the fintech space. You know, we, we see it here in this, in this group here, a lot of lenders are starting to be, you know, differ in the market and kind of challenge the status quo and say, yes, we are here. We are here because we, we we go through, we look through the static data. We understand that you're fundamentally good borrowers and we are happy to give you to, to lend. So I think this has also had, I actually think the fintech system has helped a lot during this credit and could, could be a, a mitigant as we lend uh, out of it. It's super interesting, Freddie, isn't it? That um, the, 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 mitigants are there um, if we could grab them. So how do you think uh, we can continue to lend responsibly in this climate? And, and what did you see in your borrowing index? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that, that we both uh, no- noticed in the borrowing index and the data that we collected, as well as uh, something that Francesca picked up there is, you know, d- demand has increased and, and suppliers uh, uh, has, has decreased, right? And, and, and so, you know, the, the only way you're, you're able to lend is is to kind of have a a better understanding of your customers, arguably, and, and um, this is kind of true as it has been in, in previous financial crises. You, you know, there's there's a big opportunity for um, sort of non-bank lenders that are perhaps a bit more agile to kind of find the the, the right evaluation criteria. And, and when you think about it, you know, at the moment, if we just make a blanket assumption that that all lenders use this kind of same credit reference agencies that we talked about at the start of the episode, then you know, the only way that they're going to lend to sort of perceived higher risk customers is to charge them more. And so if you've got kind of an additional lens or an additional data set to look at those customers and a, and a better perhaps deployment mechanism, a different kind of product type, uh, you know, such as, as curve credit, you've got like the, you know, the things that, that sort of these customers can use that, that aren't available from perhaps the incumbents. And, and that's something that was picked up in, in our data and in, in the borrowing index, you know, people are, uh, 
borrowing money to fund purchases that are crucial and and you know uh, as Paul alluded to earlier in the show that, you know the, the fact that they've perhaps suffered in in some form maybe maybe a furloughing or a, you know they're on a mortgage payment holiday or something like that shouldn't prejudice the way their their risk is measured um, and if you can provide the right data sets to allow uh, a lender to efficiently see that's the case and and builds uh, confidence and, and trust as as go back to the, the kind of definition of credit then there's no reason those customers shouldn't be able to get access to those products and that's why it's kind of madness in a way that the sort of everyone's relying on the same scorecard if you like or the scorecards are probably the wrong word because it's it's got a technical definition too but the the, the same kind of underlying number or numbers um uh, because it, you know you 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 can only charge more in that case uh, if you're going to mitigate risk the world has changed it seems ready well speaking of world changing we're going to take a world changing break um we will be back after a quick word from our sponsors this episode is brought to you by jack henry digital the pioneers of personal digital banking they are reviving the vision of financial institutions being on a first name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal human-centered service that puts the customer first your customers experience immediate accessibility while your employees get cloud-based, core-connected tools to offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. This episode is also sponsored by Pento, the UK's first automated payroll platform. Say goodbye to clumsy spreadsheets, endless emails with external payroll providers and manual payments. Pento lets you run payroll in just a few clicks. It calculates taxes, integrates with platforms like Xero, and makes all the payments and reports to HMRC and pension providers for you. Go to pento.io forward slash insider to run payroll for free for the rest of the year. That's pento.io forward slash insider. Alrighty, thank you so much to our sponsors, and on with the show we go. Paul, you're kind of building a credit product right now um, with Curve. How are you thinking about it differently from from your experience inside of larger organizations? What is it that you think is really, really crucial to, to credit, especially in this market? So the delightful thing about building Curve Credit is that I'm doing it inside a tech company, um, a fintech company, albeit. And tech companies have a, a very lovely way of thinking about what they do. And it's, it's called a product mentality. But in essence, um, the, the beauty of it is that you look at everything, almost everything from a customer experience point of view. Um, it's a revelation for an, a washed up hedge fund manager, banker like myself, uh, to work inside a tech company. Um, and as we're building out Curve Credit, um, there's one concept that I've been thinking about. Um, we, I think we, we would all agree, nobody would deny that they want to be a responsible lender. Nobody would deny that they will use all the data available to them, all of their experience to lend to people where they think it's appropriate. But my experience with, um, with SAV Credit, the company that became New Day, when SAV Credit started, we were lending to people on very modest incomes. We bought the rejected applications from lenders in the UK, and we successfully built credit scores that were able to underwrite those customers. And it occurred to me that there was a distinction between those customers that repaid us and those that didn't. There were some where there were irreducible risks. It's just a fact of life. Occasionally, there will be defaults. There were quite clearly a large group of people, albeit on modest incomes, that were conscientious. They, they were making responsible decisions. So as we build out Curve Credit, this concept that I think about the most is responsible borrowing, is there's an, there's an element of borrowing that I, I think irresponsible is a bit pejorative, but there's, there are types of borrowing where the customer has either neither had the chance nor perhaps decided to consider the consequence of the borrowing decision. The question that I had with Curve is, um, there's a tendency in fintechs to make things as smooth and quick as efficient as possible. The question for Curve Credit is, what is it that we're trying to make smooth and efficient and quick? The answer is, it is not lending and it is not borrowing. It is responsible borrowing. So I don't want to be tempted into making my process as smooth and efficient as possible. I want the process of encouraging responsible borrowing to be as smooth and efficient as possible. So that's the one concept that we're trying to introduce into Curve Credit is we want it to be slick and efficient. We want it to use a lot of data, but there's a constraint. The constraint is we want our customers to have had enough information as clearly presented to them as possible that they make a considered decision. I think if people make considered decisions, you're halfway there with creditworthiness and affordability. 
interesting. And, and it's interesting to me that uh, the informed decision for one person is very different for somebody else. Um, because how informed are you in, in the background and how many times have you taken that type of credit product before? So not all customers are the same customer. And I do think we, we tend to segment them by um, geography or age or, or incomes when actually, as you say, it's it's propensity and, and personality types uh, that are actually potentially far more far more indicative. Paul, you just wanted to jump back in there? It, it, it is. It, I mean, personality types I find very interesting because I think Freddie and Credit Kutas are leading the second wave of the use of data in credit referencing, and it's lovely to see sophisticated use of open banking data. But if you accept my hypothesis that the what we used to call willingness to repay is in fact conscientiousness or something, a personality type like that, then I think, and I'm sure Freddie is well ahead of me on thinking about this, there'll be another wave, I think, of assessment, and that will be the assessment of conscientiousness and vulnerability. So the so you're right that people have different credit experience. That they're also their personal circumstances are also highly volatile too. Somebody can not be vulnerable today, but be vulnerable next week. I mean, the the, the pandemic is the the next wave. I think, and I know Freddie's probably ahead of me. Will be what evidence is there in the data that we've got, or what other types of data do we need to truly evaluate vulnerability and conscientiousness? And I think that's that's where the new generation, the Freddies of the world, I hope, they will start to examine new types of data and new types of techniques to, to try to extract these personality types, if that's the right way to do it. Or to go back to Freddie's earlier observation, his history was very good about the origins of credit. Do we need to get back to person to person? Do we need real neural networks interacting with real neural networks? Or will, in fact, we be able to do this efficiently with artificial intelligence, natural language processing, and other techniques? Well, and, and Freddie, I guess you've you've been further ahead for, for three different uh, mentions there. So uh, let's let's unpack that a little bit because open banking, um, whether it's Plaid in the US or whether it's um, kind of uh, the the sort of the more standard options we have here in here in Europe, uh, gives you something. But open banking and open finance are not the same thing, and that's not the same as all of the data that you could use to, to make these decisions. So unpack that and maybe start at what open banking does give me uh, from some of the things that Paul mentioned. Yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, in, in its raw form, obviously, hopefully most people listening to this will, will know what open banking is, but we're, we're getting bank statement data in a digital form. And bank statements have been used in various types of lending for a while now in, in their, their paper-based format, particularly mortgages as an as a assessment of affordability. Uh, and, and as we've seen regulation from the FCA push that kind of same accuracy and affordability question down to uh, more short-term types of borrowing, the need to verify that, that someone could afford credit has become uh, more and more common. And, and, and to be clear, this has been traditionally done based on the customer telling you whether they can afford something which is you know, purely in, user-inputted information or, or using something like ONS, Office of National Statistics data, that to say that you know, Freddie lives in this postcode and he probably earns this amount of money and therefore it's fine. And so open banking in its like raw form pretty much gives us a, a much more accurate up to the minute way to assess affordability. There's still a, a high degree of, or at least a, a degree of subjectivity in, in how you do affordability and, and how different companies do that. And, and obviously uh, the FCA regulates this on, on a principles basis. And so it's, it's proportional to the the customer and, and what they need and what they're, they're purchasing. And I think that's something that Paul picked up on. It's really interesting is, is context is, is so important. You know, it's, you know, even just the same loan, product for the same person at a different point in the day or in the point in the month or you know that what's going on around it has an effect on on the the, the you know whether that's uh, responsible borrowing uh, or not um but then from a, a propensity perspective so so setting affordability aside as the kind of can i afford to repay this question propensity being the am i going to you know am i sort of trustworthy or however you want to want to describe it uh we're we're really interested in how open banking can influence that and, and uh, as i kind of alluded to at the start of the show we're, we're we're a credit reference agency as well as an open banking provider and what that means is that we look at the performance and outcomes of our customers and, and look at how their open banking data uh, correlates and, and uh, maps to their their subsequent repayment behaviors and that's super interesting because you're 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 looking at essentially the the behavior markers across you know how people transact and, and how that maps to credit worthiness and ability and likelihood to repay uh, and that's something that you know hasn't hasn't really been used before as we've talked about and it and it means that 
you you as a lender can start to provide credit to people that have traditionally been overlooked by the, the kind of bureau scores we talked about, you know, people that maybe are in the gig economy or are self-employed or SMEs that, you know, need bounce back or C-bills loans or things like that, all, all these kind of areas where the data are thin, uh, you, you'll start to, to able to address those pockets of risk. Non-traditional income sources, uh, many income sources, people just trying to do what they can to survive may not fit inside the existing workflows. Um, Francesco, I'm interested in... Um, does open banking potentially give you a bit of a competitive advantage um, as a lender? Um, absolutely a lot. And in two ways, uh, for those people that embrace it, and we have, so that's we've already seen the difference. So there are two two things that open banking does, in my view, that for which I think is, is really a game changer in the industry, and we are just starting with this, right? So one is the granularity and kind of accuracy of data, raw data, right? So you can then elaborate real-time instantly, Whatever using whatever algorithm you want, and effectively you can also dynamically update. So um, it's a complete difference than just you know receiving a bank statement that was probably printed three months ago. Uh, when you have all this data in front of you, you can you know check affordability, define what affordability really is based on you know a richness of data that is just 10x more than any other lenders, and based on that, then you can design bespoke products for that person, maybe even just tailored product real time, give them a quote, and you know you're pricing for the risk that you see and that is is actually the real risk. Um, now, there is a second part of open banking though that does give um, a competitive advantage to those people that embrace it and I think creates a little bit healthier, I think, competition in the industry, which is open banking allows different players, also non-bank lenders, to access data that traditionally, historically, were only um, owned by your your bank. So historically, again, it's a little bit of a lesson of history today, but we banks also play this vital role. The reason why they can extend lending to one of their customers because they're supposed to know more about their customer. They're supposed to, right? But because they see all their transactions, they see that that customer has repaid for the last 10 years on their um, mortgage, for example. Now, effectively what's happening with open banking, this rich data source is becoming not public, but almost, right? It's going out of your bank. So effectively, people like us, honestly, non-bank lenders or, you know, other type of lenders so can just access the same data and do the same assessment. And ideally, use, you know, even technology and, you know, more sophisticated data analytics to, to assess affordability. So I think it has taken out partially some of the monopoly that, banks had on this type of data. And by doing that, I think it creates a better level playing field to then all strive for better customer outcomes. That is what we all want, right? So, um, yeah, I think it, the impact of open bank is still to be seen. It will be in the long term, it will be massive. Paul, do you, would you agree with that? And you were sort of uh, alluding to some interesting points earlier as well, like open banking is bigger than open banking. But like, what are the what are the bullet point versions of the benefits to a lender of really playing with this stuff properly? So I agree. I mean, open banking data is incredi- an incredibly rich source of information. Um, it Not only is it rich in the sense that we can see uh, income and expenditure and take the difference and compute affordability metrics. But a long time series of open banking data, it seems to me, would also be revealing about um, the, the volatility of income and expenditure. And one of the takeaways I've had looking closely at open banking data in one or two contexts is um, I then look at my own product terms and conditions. I look at my consumer lending terms and conditions, or I look at other people's terms and conditions. I look at the richness and the variability of the open banking data. I look at the stayed equal monthly in payments of my buy now, pay later loans, and I'm starting to wonder if we need to rethink the way financial products are designed. Because do financial products actually reflect the real financial life of our customers? The answer is clearly not. The very concept of a default, this blot on your copybook, this binary event, is driven by the types of contracts that haven't changed since Roman times, which is every month on the following day, you will pay me the following amount, or I will put a cross next to your name, and then you're done. So uh, it's an incredibly rich source of data. It does yield competitive advantages used properly. Uh, Freddie and similar companies are doing a wonderful job extracting the information from a complex data source. 
I do think though that the takeaway is there is such a lot of information in it. Do our financial products really match the richness of people's personal financial lives? The answer is probably not. Mm. I'm interested, Freddie, um, as you bring this back around to the consumer side, there's a lot that lenders can be doing with open banking. Um, but sort of what what's that going to mean if they do? Um, what's the what's that going to look like in in um, in real world impact for them? Well, I mean, ultimately, the the more accurately you can measure risk and lend to the right people, the the more money you make, right? So the the kind of the immediate upside is is clear, I, I guess. It, for for me, when you think about lending models, there's there's kind of the precision versus recall trade off, right? Um, like the most accurate model uh, that's 100% right all the time is the one that says no to everyone um, because you, you never have a default. And so you're, you're always kind of trading off between, you know, broadening the the cohort of customers that you can reach and, and making sure that your accuracy within that cohort is good. Um, and one of the things that open banking brings to the table that maybe traditional credit measures haven't uh, been able to do is is increasing the the recall. You know, we, we can sort of make percentage gains on accuracy, you know, improve this variable, tune this thing, but actually reaching more customers that were just completely ignored or overpriced before um, gives you a huge competitive edge, right? If you can price the, the risk of a customer that's in those pockets that we were talking about before, you know, the variable income sources or the, the, the new graduates that don't have borrowing history and therefore have thin credit files or whatever it may be, then then you're reaching a, in a competitive way, a, a broader set of customers. Um, and, and as Francesca alludes to, you, you're also getting a data set that traditionally has been the, you know, proprietary access of, of just the, the sort of big uh, balance sheet uh, lenders and big banks that, that have had access to this information. And so you, you've got this opportunity to kind of think about how you cross sell across all those things as well. And, you know, different models of lending that as, as Paul talked about can, can come into, come into the fray. That's important points. Francesca, what do you think we're missing in this conversation as we as we sort of come to a conclusion? What are your what are your sort of uh, parting thoughts? Well, I maybe I would just think about the customer here because <laughs> here we have a lender, we have a couple of lenders, we have a credit a very advanced and sophisticated and futuristic um, you know, credit agency open banking. But the truth is, yeah, we're a little bit missing the customers. Okay, we can be honest with ourselves. So I think we let's go back to this, right? Though then um all of these, at the end, I think we can, I don't, you know, I don't think anybody would disagree if I say that all of us here are striving to do what's best for the customer. And I think we should not forget that, right? So at the end, all of these make sense if it drives better customer outcomes. And I think it does. So I think everything we've been discussing about using effectively rich data, alternative data uh, that are more forward-looking, not backward-looking, and ideally, you know, leveraging all these transaction dynamics to give better products. I mean, it's all aimed at giving customers an outcome that otherwise they will not um, achieve in terms of access to credit primarily, which is, I think, what um, Freddie was mentioning before. Access to credit is very important. We see in the mortgage market all the time, a lot of customers are stigmatized. They don't get access to a mortgage. This is terrible, right? So... I do believe that all these tools we've been discussing about and better data will give access to lending to more and more people in a risk-based way. We need to take some risk, but if you are better informed, you take the right risk. So it's access better customer accounts, you know, uh, access through customer access to credit, but also better pricing. And we should not forget that a lot of people now overpay for what they should be price paying. So, I think let's not forget, I think to for all of us, and I say for myself as well, that all of this makes sense if at the end it drives better customer outcomes and it brings a positive impact overall. But I know that the companies that are here around the table, they're effectively focusing on this all the time. Yeah, so. we're, we're trying to get it done. We're trying to get credit that's that's more personalized, I guess, that's, that's unique to your circumstances. Uh, I guess there's also a little bit more uh, forgiving of the realities of the ups and downs. And that's kind of, that's kind of interesting to, to play with. Paul, um, any, any closing thoughts from you? Yeah, I, I, uh, I have a, a closing thought, which is a thought experiment, which I think I hope summarizes our conversation. And it's the following. When I look at the power of open banking and the conversation that we've had, I think I want to be in a position of being a responsible lender with a responsible borrower who defaulted on an obligation last week. That's the power of open banking data and the true assessment of information. Is that event last week? 
I should still find myself in a position with adequate information to lend to somebody this week. If we can do that, then we've, then we've uncovered the real power of open banking and similar data. There's a thought. Freddie, final thoughts? Uh, I, I just I, I agree with, with, uh, with Paul. I, I think that uh, you know, the, the product types that, that can be enabled and delivered through more accurate, up-to-date data is what really excites me. You know, yes, we can improve the way that things happen for a traditional credit assessment today, but also we can start to, to lend in new ways that fit the needs of customers. And that's really exciting. It is exciting. All right. Well, so the glimmer of hope coming out of the pandemic is that maybe people uh, are really have been forced to look at their lending models um, in a market where those models don't make any sense anymore, uh, where there are more sources of data out there. And maybe that's gone from the innovation lab to the core of what we do. Um, and that there are fintechs doing this for customers as well today. And there's a lot of people we can learn from. So let's hope that the we do get to those better customer outcomes, as Francesca says, and we, we do look a little bit differently at credit. We de-stigmatize it and maybe we can turn it into something that can create opportunity uh thank you so much everybody for joining me in a great discussion um freddie i'm going to start with you where can people find out more about you and credit kudos uh so credit kudos is creditkudos.com uh and i'm freddie kelly on uh, linkedin and, and twitter and all that good stuff good stuff uh paul curve is curve.com and uh, providing you spell my surname correctly, um, you'll find me on LinkedIn. And I always respond to DMs on uh, LinkedIn. There you go. Um, look out inbox. And uh, Francesca, how about you? Yeah. So Molo is at molofinance.com. And I'm also very active on LinkedIn. So name is Francesca Carlesi. Again, spelling might be a challenge, but I'm there and I respond quite um, proactively. And just Google CEO of Molo Finance and uh, then you can copy paste, right? That's that's the way to do these things. Um, as for me, you can find me, Simon Taylor, on LinkedIn uh, or at SYTaylor on Twitter. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please remember to subscribe to the podcast. Um, don't forget to leave us a review and tell everybody you know about this podcast. Just tell random people as you're coming into the Christmas holidays. I listened to this great show all about credit and really enjoyed it. Uh, if you want to get involved in the conversation, uh, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS. Uh, Insider or email podcast at 11fs.com if you've got any suggestions. Thanks very much and goodbye for now.